Johnny Gould's Jewish State. 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 There are so many people who are anti-Israel, but they really don't understand the conflict at all. They don't understand the Palestinians. They don't understand the history. That's not to say that Palestinians don't deserve something significantly better. In fact, I think what we created allows them to create something they can be incredibly proud of. And with all the help the world would give them if they would actually sign a peace agreement with Israel that made sense, they might even be able to create something as successful as Israel in a much shorter time. Jason Greenblatt exudes measure and thoughtfulness. He presents the opposing arguments, then can roundly pick them apart, but always leaves his opponent with dignity intact. That's really what I do too. I, when I visit these countries, not all of them are Abraham Accord signatories. I like to call them one day Abraham Accord signatories. That would include Saudi Arabia, that would include Qatar. I think we're in a different world. These are not enemies of Israel anymore. Um, that doesn't mean that they're perfect. We're not perfect either. And I think our goal should be to continue to build those bridges because eventually they do get built. When you think about the Abraham Accords, you know, people would have never believed that was coming. Jason's instinct for the family and the workings around it has always been at the fore, that each person he's negotiated with is a family man too, with roots, dreams, and a future. But in his book, In the Path of Abraham, the full title of which is How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It, is a perfect cue for this. Part of the Biden administration's problem is that they see this regime as if this regime thinks like us, like Americans, like Europeans, like the United Kingdom. They don't. They want to rule over these people. They, frankly, besides wanting to destroy Israel and probably destroy America, they want to take over the Middle East. They probably want nothing more than to be, you know, enjoying Dubai, these beautiful gleaming glass towers in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Doha, and elsewhere. And people don't understand that. This is not the Iranian people issue, it's the Iranian theocracy, the regime, the murderous ideology. Jason's done a lot of these interviews promoting his book In the Path of Abraham, but I'd like to think this one has the texture of two people who've come to know each other a bit better. I've come to respect his work in the pursuance of peace always based in the real world. A word on his boss, President Donald Trump. Jason, it's a Jewish podcast. He liked your frumkite. He did. He encouraged it. He supported it. Um, that's why it's painful to me when people accuse him of being an anti-Semite. If this is your introduction to Johnny Gould's Jewish state, you're welcome. Press the subscribe button. Tell your friends, and while you're listening, scroll back and download Jason's fellow Trump administration colleague, the State Department's secret weapon, Len Khodorkovsky, who arrived in the U.S. as a Soviet-Ukrainian refugee child in 1981 and in 2017 took an oath of office in the State Department. That's kind of what we came, arrived to America with, just those three layers of clothing on our backs, uh, the few things that my parents were able to sell along the way on the black market just to, to have some money so that when we, we arrived, we wouldn't be completely penniless. And just, you know, my parents' hope in America.
me being an unlikely guy to find myself in the State Department, to take it from that disembarkment at JFK Airport in New York in, in August of 1981 to me taking an oath of office in December of 2017. You know, that's a trajectory. That's an American story, right? Jonathan Friedland's The Escape Artist, the incredible story of Rudolf Werber's escape from Auschwitz, which saved 200,000 Hungarian Jewish lives. Who is it exactly that becomes famous and, um, and becomes uh, known and who gets forgotten? And Werber, there's, I, I think it is very much part of the story why he's not more famous. Part of it is that he was angry. It meant he pointed an accusing finger at people who I think we all would rather were not part of the accused. So I think there is a comfortable way of telling the Second World War story, which is all evil resided in Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler and the Germans, the Nazis, and everyone else was on the side of good. Everybody else. Now, that's not true. It's more complicated. It can't be. It can't be. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is supported by UK Teremet, promoting philanthropy. Jason Greenblatt, for the second time, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really happy to see you again, sir. Congratulations on a brilliant new book, In the Path of Abraham. You open up with a succinct, potted history of Israel and the wider region, and the pace of writing continues into creating a new conversation based on reality, which was always, I think, the brand values of, of your version of peace, and ends with a, with a warning, actually, to the Biden administration. So you, you hit the nail on the head. I really wanted to let people understand not only who we were, but what we learned, why we did what we did, and to give the Biden administration some very, very strong advice. You know, you can take the knowledge that we gained because it's a brand new Middle East, I think that really started a little bit before 2017 when President Trump took office, but certainly morphed during his time in office and continues to morph to this very day. Or you could go back to the failed policies of the past, whether they were right or wrong back then, who knows, I wasn't in the room, but I could tell you what exists today. And, to some degree, they're not heeding it, in particular when it comes to Iran, a little bit when it comes to the Palestinians. And to some small degree, I think they've come to the realization with President Biden's recent trip that, in fact, we're right. And uh, I hope that they'll continue to focus on the region, in on the new region, I should say, in the way that we laid it out for them. Indeed, we'll talk about some of those themes later on in the interview, but I wanted to use this second opportunity to advance our conversation from where we left off last time. I would encourage um, everyone to uh, listen into the previous episode. And that was really when you'd only just recently checked out of the peace process. In the words of Hotel California, you told me you could never leave. Um, now, is that true? Have your eventful years shaping the Abraham Accords changed your life for good? I remember that quote, actually. I don't think it was mine. I think it was uh, one of the peace processors from the past who had told me it just as I was leaving. (laughs) And I think he's right. I think for anyone who's probably worked on this file, it's very hard to just set it down and walk away and go back to life without constantly thinking about it. So I do find myself very, very much involved, not on the government side in the US, but continuing to deal with governments across the Arab countries, 
I think that they appreciate it. I certainly appreciate and respect them and the time that they indulge me with. And uh, whether it's on social media, speeches, government engagement, and most importantly to me, both among Israelis, Palestinians, and the broader Arab world, uh, I continue to stay involved. Now, like so many people in the Trump administration, you were not a traditional politician. Far from it. You were not a diplomat. You're a born diplomat, sir, if I might say okay. so. And I've had the I'm pleasure. Sure. I think I learned that on the job. <laughs> well, maybe so. I think it, it might be slightly innate from my um, experience of, uh, of our, uh, our relationship so far. But I've also had the pleasure of talking and making friends, not just with you, but with uh, Mr. Len Khodakovsky, uh, who believed his marketing background could even prevent misunderstandings, even wars. And um, it really was a case of trying new methods to fix old problems. One of the things that I walked away with is we need more marketing people in, in politics and in public diplomacy. I think if we had more professionals in that space, we would have fewer wars, to be honest with you. No experience necessary. I think that was the hallmark of so many breakthroughs in the Trump administration, including yours, Peace to Prosperity. Indeed. And I, you know, there's a chapter of the book uh, with that title, as you point out. Uh, and, and I firmly believe that. Look, whether it's President Trump himself, he was not a politician, to Jared Kushner, David Friedman, any of the people that worked on this file, but Jared, David, and I were tasked with it primarily. Um, what we came to realize is we need to approach things differently. You need to approach it with an open mind, an open heart, from a business perspective, Things that make sense, you try to chase and go after and see if you succeed. Things that don't make sense, it's time to move on. You can't keep trying to do the same thing over and over again, um, not have success. If, if anything, with the Palestinian leadership, we had a tremendous pushback, not just not have success. And then you sort of have to take a step back and say, if that's the way you want it, it's our job to try to get things done. There's a lot of things the U.S. government has to get done. We uh, respect U.S. taxpayer money, so we're not going to waste our time on things that are not achievable. Which brings me on to the question about how much you think you disarmed even the most hostile adversary. We've just mentioned probably, number one, the Palestinian Authority. You didn't talk to Iran. Didn't get that far. <laughs> wasn't possible. But let's talk about the people who you did manage to get to talk to. At least you did have a conversation with the Palestinian Authority, even though it wasn't as fruitful as perhaps you would have hoped in your wildest dreams. But because you came in peace, because you had a genuine desire to help at creating a lasting peace, well, there was a moment in the room where perhaps you thought, you know, at least there's a, there's a sort of channel we can go down here. Yeah, so there was a channel. And let's, I guess let's distinguish between the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah and the Palestinian leadership in Gaza, or so-called leadership. Let's put the Gaza aspect out of the way for a moment in this conversation. They're terrorists. They vowed to destroy Israel. We had no conversations with them. And I'm not sure our conversations with them would have moved uh, the needle even the slightest, tiniest bit. The Palestinian leadership in Ramallah, I would say different. President Abbas led us to believe, at least for the first several months, that there was a chance. Um, he said he'd enter into talks with Israel with no preconditions. He, of course, stated his case um, the way he needed to state his case. He did it authoritatively. He did it uh, with conviction. But as time wore on, it became more clear to me that these were really his um, minimum and maximum demands, meaning he was just not going to give any wiggle room to Israel. 
And of course, what they did is they used as an excuse President Trump's uh, bold and historic decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital, essentially following US law, bipartisan US law from the 90s. And they used that as the excuse to walk away. And I, I need to remind people we're not the only ones who they walked away from. They walked away time and time again, including under President Obama, who might have been the most pro-Palestinian president that ever occupied the White House. So people should understand that it had nothing to do with the Jerusalem announcement. Indeed, President Trump during the campaign, candidate Trump and then President Trump must have said dozens, if not ten, you know, 70 times that he was going to do that. So it shouldn't have come as a surprise to them. Uh, but at least President Abbas, I would say, and even Saab Erekat, the late Saab Erekat, who I had very, very strong disagreements with, and he and I are probably polar opposite when it comes to these issues, I wouldn't say that he didn't at least want to engage. His engagement might, have been, might not have been fruitful, but I think he was willing to sit down at the table and at least talk. But then there are others, and I, I don't know him personally, Prime Minister Steyer, who at the time or when he thought the peace plan would be released, it turned out it was released months later, but when he thought the peace plan would be released, he would issue these statements that he hoped the peace plan would be born dead. And that says a lot about a person. You know, either you're in your position and you're there to make your, the lives of your people better and try to build a hopeful future for them. And it's okay if you say after the peace plan is released, this is terrible for the Palestinians because of X, Y, or Z, or we don't like pages one through 80. Whatever you want to say and criticize about the peace plan, you're welcome to it. But before you have uh, any indication of what's in the peace plan, to make those kind of statements says a lot about where the Palestinian leadership truly is, was then and remains um, in terms of their seriousness about engaging in a good faith, realistic way with Israel. They worked out, didn't they, with their no, 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 and no methodology that they had a veto on Israeli progress. That's really what this all came down to. And that's what people on the Palestinian side, and I think on the Palestinianism side, which we so see on the left in this country and in the United States, have a blind spot to. It seems to me that by extension, uh, they support the destruction of Israel. And finally, your plan said, we're not gonna stand still. There are people of goodwill in the Gulf. There are partners who never had war with the state of Israel or Jews. I talked to a remarkable man, a Shia Muslim as well, Imam Tawhidi, the, the uh, Imam of peace, who uh, declares that the Quran says that actually uh, Israel is commanded in the Quran to the Jewish people. And he says the region, not even the current borders or armistice lines of the state of Israel, but uh, <laughs> the region, which is even bigger. God tells me in the Holy Quran that he assigned this entire region, again, region, not land. So the borders of Israel today are not the region. They're part of the region. We're talking region. God tells me that he gave the Holy Land, Sinai, you name it, the Holy Land, the Jordan River, the whole of Jordan, all of that. He gave it to the children of Israel. He gave it to the prophets of Israel and he gave it to their nations and he gave it to those whom he had a covenant with. And he said, I assigned it to you, enter the land and do not get out. Do not turn your backs on this land. 
chapter 5 of the Holy Quran, verses 20 onwards. So this is a land title. God tells me he gave Moses and his people, the followers of the Torah, a land title to the Holy Land. So I look at it this way. Fine. We are going to debate politically whether or not this land belongs to the Jews or belongs to the Palestinians. But I know the Holy Quran is the most superior text on, on planet Earth. There is no uh, Belfort Declaration. There is no uh, court ruling, Supreme Court, opinion, treaties, Oslo Accords, Abraham Accords, whatever you want to call it. All of this come later. The Quran tells me God wants this land to belong to the Jews. And he wants Mecca to belong to the Muslims uh, led by the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him and his family. So I now have two options, either go with God or go with the politicians. I can't go with the politicians. I have to go with God. I have to. There's no other way. And so here was the breakthrough that the veto was ended. Right. And, and then I think that shocked them. Right. So when they cut ties with us and really I should roll the clock back about a month before the Jerusalem announcement, we had to close the Palestinian office in Washington. It wasn't an embassy because we don't recognize Palestine as a country. And we had to close it because President Abbas, about two months prior to that at the United Nations General Assembly, threatened to bring Israel to the International Criminal Court. That triggered a law or a, a regulation to close their mission in Washington. I broke the news to Saab Erekat was in town in Washington, DC. He had a lung transplant, he was recuperating. And I wanted to tell him face to face rather than him read it from a news report. So I went to the apartment that he had rented. I met his wife, his son, who happened to have a new baby. And I, I told him the news and of course he was furious. Mm. His words to me were along the lines of, Jason, if you do that, you're gonna go home a failure, it's all over. And I said, Saab, you know, with respect, I'm going to go home and I'm going to be with my wife and family and enjoy my life, um, you know, back to being uh, an employee or a business person or whatever it is. But you and your kids and your grandkids are going to be the failures. And he was taken aback because usually what happens is when he would make threats like that, U.S. government officials would say, oh, no, 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 please, please. What can we do to help? What can we do to help? What can we do to change it? We'll change our minds. He didn't expect to have somebody pushing back on him and calling him out for what is a ridiculous, outrageous comment. But I also said to him, the odds are anyway, we're going to keep our heads down and we're going to keep working. We're going to develop a peace plan. We're developing not something that's a half a page or a page long. We're really trying hard to study the conflict, understand it, and come up with a realistic plan. It was at the time probably 20, maybe 30 pages long and ended up being, depending on the font and the style, something like 60 to 80 pages plus an additional uh, dozens of pages of an economic plan that Jared Kushner had uh, created. And uh, I told him that he's not going to stand in the way of our work. And our work at the time then, once they withdrew, was coming up with that thorough peace plans in the hope that maybe it would get traction, either under our watch or perhaps a later administration, plus continuing to see how we could nurture those green shoots that we were seeing among the Arab countries. And I'm not gonna say at the time I felt that we had removed the Palestinian veto because we had no idea, but we were encouraged enough by the many conversations we had by then with many of the Arab countries to understand 
maybe, maybe there's something new going on here. And uh, it would be really important for us to see what we could do with it. Are you playing catch up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. There isn't a fertility rate problem in Israel, um, for instance, as there is in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be canceled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from a journalist. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. had something in Pat that he point blank refused to accept. And the one thing that he has that Israeli supporters don't have is the information wars. They have a winning stake in propaganda, which is so difficult for us to counter the constant slurs, the lies, the narrative, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the dominant narrative which fills the media and has done so for the last five decades. And casual observers of the Middle East, people who look at it and go, oh, those Arabs and those Jews, they never stop fighting. You know, there's a broad brushstroke, they don't really understand it. Would think that this was, that's what it was all about. It ignores though, as you just hinted at, the intricacies of how the other Arab, Muslim and Gulf nations view the Palestinians. Indeed. And look, the, the main reason, if I had to put my finger on it, the main reason I wrote the book is to dispel those myths. There are so many people who are anti-Israel, but they really don't understand the conflict at all. They don't understand the Palestinians. They don't understand the history. That's not to say that Palestinians don't deserve something significantly better. In fact, I think what we created allows them to create something they can be incredibly proud of, and with all the help the world would give them if they would actually sign a peace agreement with Israel that made sense, they might even be able to create something as successful as Israel in a much shorter time. Because Israel fought from the moment of its ex existence for its life. And miraculously, they've become this tremendously successful country, both economically, security-wise, they're one of the happiest countries in the world, but they did it against all odds and they continued to do it under attack from Hamas, from the threat of Hezbollah and others. 
Whereas the Palestinians, if they actually engaged and signed something, and whatever they end up with, you want to call it a state, uh, an entity, uh, something, doesn't matter, they could be hugely successful. But um, there are so many people who just throw out these comments and these statements. They know nothing about Palestinian lives. They know nothing about anything, including the Arab neighbors and what the Arab neighbors think about the Palestinian leadership. And they think they're doing the Palestinians a favor, but they're actually doing them tremendous damage. And it does. It does stop meaningful peace between Israel and not just the Palestinian entity, but also Lebanon as well, in a way, even though it's still a partly Christian country, it could be a great ally. It inspires rocket attacks, stabbings and shootings in Israel. As the peace diplomat who is a, the peace to prosperity plan was lauded as the most reflective of facts on the ground. In other words, what actually existed. Jason, I know you've written a lot of you know, text about this. Where is the solution? Is it in war with Iran? Is it in a full-scale defeat of Islamic Jihad and uh, Hamas in Gaza? Is it the overthrowing of the Palestinian Authority? Is it the Trump plan of going in and getting victory in, in Judea and Samaria? You know, where, where is this victory? Because, you know, it, it, it is, tragically, it might be military. So, you know, I hate to give this answer, but it's all of that and none of that, right? If you know the game Whack-A-Mole, I don't know if they have that in uh, the United Kingdom. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, we, we, yeah, we got that. We got moles. <laughs> so if you take out one problem, let's say somehow the Iranian regime changes its stripes or is defeated by the Iranian people or however it ends up happening, you're still always going to have evil people. And however when you take out one of these groups, new ones are going to spring to life. And to me, the, the recognition of that is the key to the whole thing. The fact that Israel can partner with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and others and say, look, we're in a tough neighborhood. We all wanna prosper. We all want our kids to thrive. We all wanna stay safe. So let's work together on that and recognize that there are bad people who wanna destroy our way of life. And sadly, that's going to be what happens. Even by the way, if there is a peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians, let's say somehow, miraculously, Hamas lays down its weapons, joins forces with the PA and says, let's negotiate, they sit down with Israel, they come up with a deal that makes sense for them. Remember, it's not that it makes sense for America or for the European Union or for the United Nations. We're not relevant. All we can do is help. It has to make sense for the parties. Let's say they do that. No one, I think, in their right mind would think that that means that there won't be terror attacks somehow. There might be terror attacks within the Palestinian area against what happened. There, might, there will be terror attacks against Israel. So they all have to work together to fight this evil. To me, it's really a battle of good versus evil. And among that, as you say, whack-a-mole, this idea that a leader like Benjamin Netanyahu, like Naftali Bennett, like Yair Lapid, and whoever becomes prime minister... After that, maybe one of those names yet again um, has to be pragmatic. Why do you think the state of Israel continues to work with the PA when the same PA only and openly incentivizes, encourages, rewards terrorists who murder Israeli civilians and others in its territories? 
Yeah, it's a fair question. It's a smart question. And the only real good answer is prag pragmatic, pragmatic rather. There's no other way to deal with it. They can't fix this heinous policy that the Palestinian Authority has to reward Palestinians to harm and murder Israelis. Americans, by the way, and other nationals get killed in these terror attacks too. They have laws, as we do in the United States, to um, cut funding, but that's just a Band-Aid, right? It's not going to take away the ideology. It's not going to cause the PA to stop this policy. We tried. Uh, there was a time, I remember, when the Palestinian Authority basically said to Israel, if you're not going to give us all of our money, we're not going to take any of the money. And it was remarkable to me. I went to the Security Council. We had a very important meeting about it. And they said, you know, Jason, you have to force Israel to pay the Palestinians all of the money they're due, not to deduct from the money due to the Palestinians, the money that, you know, for example, the United States does when it reduces the dollars payable to the Palestinian Authority based on the amount that the Palestinian Authority used to reward the murder of Israelis. And then everything will be calm. And I said to them, how does that make sense? How does that, you know, it's like dealing with a spoiled child. Oh, you're crying, here's a lollipop. Oh, you cry harder, here's yet another lollipop. You know, either the Palestinians could recognize that they're hurting themselves if they don't want to take the money, or they could accept the fact that this is the law of Israel, which the United States has no right to tell them to change, no less than we would expect any country to tell us to eliminate the Taylor Force Act, and see what happens. But the diplomatic approach is always, let's figure out a way to just solve the crisis immediately with a tiny little Band-Aid. We know the blood and the um, wound are still oozing, but at least it's covered up for the moment. And we'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Every interview has to have a bit of light and shade. Um, and uh, we've enjoyed that uh, before. And uh, now I'm going to take it into a new paragraph. Can we talk about your extraordinary relationship with Donald Trump <laughs> and how that evolved? You started as a junior attorney in the Trump organization. And you're an observant Jew. You were then. That meant you weren't available to him or his team for 25 hours over Shabbos and all the high holy days in either September or October, depending on the moon. Yet uh, Mr. Trump saw your faith as a blessing, an advantage. Jason, it's a Jewish podcast. He liked your frumkite. He did. He encouraged it. He supported it. Um, that's why it's painful to me when people accuse him of being an anti-Semite or condoning anti-Semitism or dog whistling to anti-Semites. There was actually a fascinating CNN uh, documentary. And it's the first time I think that CNN actually aired a different clip from the Charlottesville episode that most people don't actually see. And they did it thankfully, because in my interview, I reminded CNN that when they play the, there are very fine people on both sides, they're taking a tiny clip of that interview and they fail to show the whole interview. So good for them, CNN, you know, not exactly Trump fans, right? And they aired the part where Trump condemned white supremacists and white nationalists, clearly, unequivocally. So um, I'm a guy who has known and worked for him for 23 years. I never saw an ounce of anti-Semitism. I actually saw only the opposite and, you know, you could take sound bites and change opinions around the world about a person, or I could tell you that 23 years of working for somebody very closely um, is really the truth. 
So, uh, you know, that's my opinion on Donald Trump and his support of the Jewish people. That is totally separate from ripping up the Iran deal, which obviously, uh, I mean, people could disagree about it, but that move was to protect Israel and the region. He's protecting 9 million Israeli citizens, not all Jewish. And uh, that also shows how much he cares about Jews and the state of Israel. Indeed, you recount the dizzying story of how Mr. Trump turned you from being his chief legal counsel charged with extricating him from the business of the Trump organization to becoming the president of the United States, to actually joining him in the White House to improve relations with Israel. There was a little bit of a notice there where he called you downstairs into a melee of media from absolutely nowhere. And he said, here's my Israeli uh, guy. Here's, here's the guy that, that tells me what I need to know. And, and he was playing with you, wasn't he? He was kind of doing you a job interview. You know, it's funny, in that same CNN episode, they actually had a tiny clip of when he <laughs> said, call Jason Greenblatt down here. Um, he was, you know, I walked in, I didn't know what to expect. I thought it was uh, another business meeting relating to the transition of him becoming president. I didn't know who all these people were in the room, but as soon as I walked in and started to hear the conversation, uh, I, you know, caught on very quickly. And then um, somebody asked him a question about what people call settlements. I prefer the term cities, neighborhoods, and towns. I find the word settlement is, has become a pejorative term. And they wanted to know his opinion on it. He decided to let me handle that one. Um, and I did. And little did I know, of course, that settlements would become, you know, the hot button issue for the entire world for most of my time in the White House. Uh, and I would say that, you know, I, I'm not saying he was interviewing me at the time, because I don't think in his mind he thought that I'd be joining him at the White House. But in the very, very corners of my mind, I thought this could be really interesting if I end up playing some form of role uh, and indeed, later that day, or maybe a few days later, he announced that I'd be an Israel advisor to him, along with my friend, David Friedman, who later became the ambassador to Israel. And then after he won, he asked me to join him. Unbelievable. What an amazing story. It really is. So we're going we're gonna to move on to the Abraham Accords now. It has four Arabic signatures so far, and it's understood that none of those countries would have done anything without the blessing of the big dog, Saudi Arabia, the keeper of the keys to Mecca. When will Saudi come out and make peace, normalize with Israel? There's an awful lot of cooperation under the counter. So I guess I'd have to answer it three different ways. Number one, until we know what's happening with Iran, I don't expect anything to happen because the region is incredibly nervous. You know, every day you look at the papers and they say the Iran deal's on, the Iran deal's off. The longer and stronger Iran deal that they promised is much, much weaker if it happens at all. So it wouldn't be in Saudi Arabia's interest at the moment to take that kind of step. And I don't blame them for it. The second is Saudi Arabia is a much more complicated country. As you say, it's the keeper of the keys, keeper of the two holy mosques, a much larger population, a population that was educated differently than the countries that have signed in, in not a good way. And they're working on that. And I think they've made tremendous progress on that. So it's another reason it would take time. Certainly their public comments, uh, most of them say that there needs to be a solution. They don't say there has to be a peace agreement. They say there needs to be a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or some good faith effort. Not an unfair comment from the Saudis. I mean, I would hope that they that's not really giving the Palestinian leadership a veto card, but it's certainly 
is not cutting away the veto card. So I hope that they change their approach on that. And I guess the last part of the answer is this. My focus very much is when there's positive, always focus on the positive. So if we take the news from a couple of weeks ago where they announced that all countries, parenthetically, of course, that includes Israel, get to fly over Saudi's airspace, it's a huge deal. It's true they did that two years ago when the Abraham Accords were signed. They gave these corridors for uh, flights from Israel to the UAE, from Israel to Bahrain. But that's, very, that's a very narrow thing. They should have been commended. I'm sure they were commended back then. But this is a big deal. So I'm much more focused on a step-by-step approach than when they're going to sign. Because really, maybe MBS is the only one who knows if and when they're going to sign. Nobody else has the answer to that uh, really interesting question. Can I add a fourth one in there as well, Jason? Sure. Is it true, an open secret even, that the Saudis won't sign the Abraham Accords, irrespective of where the JCPOA ends up, while President Biden is in the White House? It's possible. Um, Until President Biden's trip, I would say probably certain, right? You had a president who, during his campaign and even thereafter, disrespected the kingdom, disrespected the crown prince, uh, a very, very foolish, foolish move, in my opinion. And that, you know, I, I don't know that I covered that in the book, but, you know, that's among the theories that I have in the book, which is treat your allies and friends with respect and warmth and a friendship, and you'll go far and treat them and kick them to the side of the curb, and you're not going to go very far. So I think that would have been true prior to the trip. The trip itself, I would say he began to turn a page, he probably turned a page in many pages that he has yet to turn in terms of the relationship. I think he recognized the foolishness of his um, words and treatment, but let's remember why he recognized it. He didn't recognize it because he woke up one day and say, oh, I made a mistake. He recognized it because of oil prices, right? With what's going on between Russia and Ukraine and now Europe is, has these tremendous challenges on energy and all that, and even America, the gas prices were tremendous. And of course, for political purposes, that's a terrible look for Joe Biden. He woke up and said, Oy vey, right? How do I fix this? Not because he realized he made a mistake. So he went there, he did his fist bump. Um, and I, it's a good step, but there's a lot more steps to repair that relationship. Tell me that's the first time you've ever used Oy vey in an interview. I think so. It's because you oh, said it's a Jewish podcast, I felt comfortable. Excellent. <laughs> I got an exclusive there. <laughs> Each processor says oy vey, reveals oy vey grief at current plight. Now, I'm intrigued by how Biden's crew even refused to refer to the Abraham Accords by name at the start, like they'd rather not acknowledge Jewish and Arab commonality through Abrahamic ideas, God forbid, spirituality and religion. We don't want that with our uh, our world of progressive perfection of identity. What do you think lay behind their insistence on calling this peace process a mere set of normalization agreements? So before I answer it, you know, if I were technically inclined, I would create a meme of Ned Price, the State Department spokesperson, when one of the journalists, I can't remember who it was, but he was excellent, kept needling him and saying, why won't you say the name? Why won't you say the name? And Ned was just like squirming in a seat. Well, there I am. They're normalization agreements. The normalization agreements. If your listeners have not seen that clip, Google it. It comes up in a couple of seconds if you search Ned Price normalization agreements. Probably better if you figure out who the journalist was. And it's comical, right? They didn't say it because they didn't want to give Trump the credit. They didn't say it because um, 
anything like that would go back to reminding people what Donald Trump and his team led by Jared Kushner actually accomplished. You know, we did something historic, but eventually they came around. Um, I think for the same reason, you know, you had the, for the same reason, as I mentioned, the treatment of Saudi Arabia, you had that disastrous Afghanistan withdrawal. They had, you know, really just awful. The images were awful. What happened there was awful. What was left behind for America was awful. The impact of the lives was awful. It was just so bad. And they realized, you know, they needed to make sure that they had a good foreign policy in place and what better way to, it's a low hanging fruit to try to seize on the Abraham Accords. So that's around the time they started using the phrase. I give them credit. You know, again, it's not that they wanted to use it. I think they were forced to use it another oy vey moment. And, um, but to their credit, they're focused on it now. They're trying, they use it. Um, that moment has passed. I'm not a guy who holds a grudge. Um, I, like to, I like to laugh about it, that Ned video is just something that um, makes me smile, but now at least they're involved. And of course, uh, as we've hinted before, so many roads to this conflict lead to Iran. Iran is a country that you've not engaged with as a Jew, neither as an American. Do you hold out hope for the millions of people in Iran today who are stand firm against their government, but they're in a theocracy, they're in a dictatorship, they fear for their lives. There are some awfully brave people there protesting all the time in towns and cities. There are women refusing to wear the veil. It just goes on and on and on, but no one is unseating the Ayatollahs. No, look, you and I are lucky, right? For all the problems each of our countries have, and they do, I think both countries need a lot of stitching up of our societies. Um, we're free, right? We could say what we want. We could walk around the way we want. Yes, there's problems, there's anti-Semitism, whatever. We're free. Uh, they're not free. I feel terrible for them. I don't see uh, the regime being toppled anytime soon. I don't want to say it won't be. I hope it will be. Uh, I think part of the Biden administration's problem is that they see this regime as if this regime thinks like us, like Americans, like Europeans, like the United Kingdom. They don't. They want to rule over these people. They, frankly, besides wanting to destroy Israel and probably destroy America, they want to take over the Middle East. They probably want nothing more than to be, you know, enjoying Dubai, these beautiful gleaming glass towers in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Doha, and elsewhere. And people don't understand that. This is not the Iranian people issue. It's the Iranian theocracy, the regime, the murderous ideology. Indeed. President Obama committed the U.S. to this JCPOA Iran nuclear deal in 2015. President Trump, as we know, withdrew America from it three years later. And now we have Biden's administration looking like they're going to restore some or all of it. Very dangerous deal for the world. How dangerous, Jason? Extraordinarily dangerous. So I want to focus on not only the nuclear threat, right? John Kirby, the National Security Council, I'm not sure of his title. Uh, I was shocked. He said in the press, I assume that this article is accurate, that they're not focused at all on the other aspect of the Iran trouble, which is them using all of their money that they'll be getting from this deal. And, and they're using it, you know, they're using whatever money they have now to foment terrorism around the world. So when you see rockets being fired from Gaza to Israel or the Hezbollah threat, which is massive, the number of rockets that they have. When you see the Houthis, and thank God that's quieted down for the moment, but 
months ago when you saw Houthis lobbing rockets and missiles at the UAE and Saudi Arabia. All of that is funded and encouraged by Iran. Hamas is an Iranian puppet, Hezbollah the same. So for the, the fact that if this is true, John Kirby saying they're only focused on the nuclear weapons and not this other thing, and they're going to give them sanctions relief and all sorts of money, what do they think is gonna happen? Do they think Iran is just gonna say, okay, let's put all the rockets in storage and leave it alone? The other aspect is they may buy time on the nuclear threat that assumes the Iranian regime won't cheat. They will, they did. I think it's naive for us to think they won't, but they're just buying time, two years of time, three years of time. This deal does not prevent Iran from having a nuclear weapon. It simply kicks the can down the road. Now there's an argument to be made, which is what people who support the deal say, well, that'll give us two more years of breathing room. We don't need to do the military action now. We can do the military action later. That, of course, assumes that they're not going to cheat, because if they cheat, you know, they're just building something very significant behind closed doors. But even if they don't cheat, so really, we're just buying time. So you're going to have to tell the next generation, or I'll have to tell the next generation, or really, President Obama will have to tell the next generation, all we did was put our heads in the sand, pray for the best, and hey, congratulations, now it's your problem. Indeed, so often administrations before and after Donald Trump, I'm talking about Obama and Biden, have treated the parties too even-handedly in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And, and therefore, they've been unable to distinguish right from wrong. I'm paraphrasing you here from the book. Yeah, you're very good. I think we should do part two together. <laughs> Why do you think the left has deserted self-determination then? Why do they mix it up with slurs claiming such an ambition is post-colonial? Apparently, the brown Jews of Israel are colonists. Yes, that's an inconvenient truth. Right? It's true, isn't it? It's ridiculous. It's total lie, manipulation, <laughs> deception. You know, they, they ignore the facts. You spoke in our last interview, Jason, about, and again, you know, you, you talk about the tension that you had in the moment, the thorough disagreement with Saeed Erekat, the situation with the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah. You spoke in our last interview about, even then, how you were accorded kosher food during your trip to Ramallah, but they are not a reliable peace partner. You've read Mahmoud Abbas's revisionist PhD on the Holocaust, and indeed, since our last interview, we heard his slurs in the worst place of all to do it, in Germany, of all places, on the, quotes 50 holocausts suffered by the Palestinians. What a disgusting comment in the worst possible place to slur, not just Israel, but his guests. For sure. So I, I'm not surprised by the comment. I cover his um, thesis in the book. People don't know about what he wrote. Uh, he's a complicated guy, right? I'm not condoning it, condoning it for a second. What he said was disgusting. He, I think the sad thing is to some degree, he actually really believes what he said. That's not exactly why he's not a peace partner. There's a lot of other reasons why he's not a peace partner. But in the end, you have to deal with the people who you have to deal with, right? At the moment, he's the leader. He's many, many years into a term that should have been much shorter. So we could pretend that he doesn't exist, I'm not saying ignore what he said uh, that day that he made those ugly comments in Germany. I was out there a lot in interviewing, in interviews condemning it. He was roundly condemned by so many around the world. This happened also while we were at the White House. I don't remember the incident, but there was an incident where he made a similarly disgusting comment. 
He was roundly condemned by the world. Good for everybody who actually spoke up. You know, I don't know what to make of the chancellor. I think he should have said something right then and there. He didn't. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He can, you know, he corrected it uh, very quickly thereafter. Maybe he didn't hear. Maybe he wasn't quick enough on his feet. Fine. You know, I don't want to make the issue that he didn't do it on stage. He fixed it. Um, but people should understand who you're dealing with when it comes to President Abbas. But then I'll, you know, to be fair to him, I'll give you the flip side of the personality, which I also write about in the book. We had a particularly contentious meeting at the UN General Assembly one year, President Abbas, President Trump, and others. And despite that challenging meeting where I think President Abbas was probably leaving, not just disappointed, but feeling frustrated and, you know, uh, not heard, uh, even though we heard him well, you know, not agreeing with him. It's not, not, not that we're not hearing him. But he came to me to say goodbye, and he kissed me on my head, and he wished me a Shana Tova. So like many leaders, right, they're complicated. Um, we have to deal with them if they're in power, and we should call out ugliness when it exists, but we should also call out the positive and try to speak as openly and frankly and honestly and sincerely as we can. If you come to this country or I come to the United States before Rosh Hashanah, I shall bear that greeting in mind for you. It's in <laughs> September. <laughs> or October. <laughs> Talk about the UN there. I've just had the pleasure of interviewing Hillel Neuer about his travails in Geneva at the UN. He's a lone voice in challenging a growing institutionalized corruption, a mission creep. I'm sure you concur with Hillel about how the UN has been completely subsumed by the growing influence of China and the diminishing, I think, overall power of the US as the world's policeman. I'm sure there's some good work that's done at the UN, but the experience that I had is, it, is so similar to Hillel's and he does amazing work. Mm. It's so many of these people, um, the, so much of the work that they do, it's a cesspool of hypocrisy. Uh, you take the UNRWA, you know, the class of Palestinians as refugees that's so different than any other class in the world. They keep them as political pawns. They just throw money at them. They don't improve their lives. They don't give them a future. Um, there, there's so much lie, manipulation, distortion there as well, but we're not going to change that overnight. Nikki Haley tried very hard. She did a remarkable job. Uh, President Trump tried. We tried to change UNRWA. We couldn't. Um, it is what it is, but I think it's important for Hillel and others to keep fighting. Members, candidates for election, have to show that they have a record of promoting human rights. Members are obliged to uphold the highest standards of human rights. So I didn't make up those rules. The UK didn't make up those rules. America didn't make up those rules. Those are the United Nations rules adopted by vast majority of the General Assembly. And these rules are being violated. And you talked to us about being sort of a lone voice. Very few speak out. Most countries are, they want to go along to get along. They don't want to speak out. They don't want to make a mess. So the final chapter of the book, Jason, offers solutions, the way forward. It's like a, a school report, indeed, for each of the stakeholders in the Middle East, from Qatar to Jordan to Saudi Arabia and beyond. I've um, had word over the last month or so that Qatar is not quite the enemy we should consider, and they are now the owners of the biggest soft power instrument in the whole world coming up, the World Cup. Even for those countries who have red lines beyond where the US and Israel see the world, they all acknowledge actually that the Abraham Accords have been a positive in lowering the temperature 
in the Middle East. And to quote Martin Luther King, the arc of justice is long, but here are my words, they're coming into view, aren't they? Indeed. So the, the World Cup issue just bubbled up. It was an Australian Jewish paper that said that the drop-down menu for ordering tickets or something on the, must be the Qatar website, call, um, uh, you know, has a occupied Palestinian territory option, but not Israel. So it's unfortunate. In fact, I tweeted something along these lines. It's unfortunate. I think it's an error in judgment, but our goal should be to build bridges. We're not going to change the world overnight. I think Israelis should go, should enjoy the World Cup, should enjoy Doha, and become really effectively uh, informal ambassadors to show Qatar what Israel is all about. It's really what I do too. And when I visit these countries, not all of them are Abraham Accord signatories. I like to call them one day Abraham Accord signatories. That would include Saudi Arabia, that would include Qatar. I think we're in a different world. These are not enemies of Israel anymore. Um, That doesn't mean that they're perfect. We're not perfect either. And I think our goal should be to continue to build those bridges because eventually they do get built. When you think about the Abraham Accords, you know, people would have never believed that was coming. So if we spend our time um, trying to develop the relationships and actually developing them, maybe eventually those countries sign too. And there's so much in what you said uh, wrapped up in Judaism itself, the, the faith which says the not yet, you know, let's work on it. Let's bring the possibility into fruition, the, the faith of the not yet, we're not there yet, but let's build and grow for it, which is uh, such a marvelous way of, of looking at things, Jason, if I might say so. And, uh, Finally, as time is uh, beating us, what about you, sir? You're not going to be a teammate of John Kerry anytime soon. But <laughs> you, you may get another shot at the White House if President Trump 2.0 happens. What does the future hold for Jason Greenblatt? Look, hard to say. I'm passionate about the, all of everything we discussed. I'm passionate about the region. You know, if it's President Trump coming back in or somebody else who I have a relationship with, and it would be about this file, it would be hard to say no, right? You know, if they ask me to work on other files, I can't make that same statement necessarily, but it would be hard to say no. So you would go back to Washington? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> We'd have some very serious What did you say? <laughs> I said it would be it. hard to say no. It's hard to say no, okay. That's a lawyer, diplomat, non-answer answer. Be hard to say no. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so sounds like a yes. Anyway, well, look, um, I'd have to, I'd have to, you know, make sure my wife is up to the task again. Of course, it, the family has the veto. Uh, exactly. There's that veto word again. Um, Jason, you are a great teacher to me. You are a person who I've learned a great deal from, not least from your temperament, actually, from the way that you conduct yourself in the face of people who you know, you can feel that they would make you angry because they're so confrontational, but you are able in a way to still maintain that humanity with them. I'm very grateful for this second opportunity and thank you for always staying in touch with me. And uh, I appreciate again your time today on Johnny Gould's Jewish State, sir. Thank you. It's been great. It's been great to get to know you. And I appreciate you taking the time to ask really smart questions and to have me as a guest. Thank you, Jason. The best guests and their most heartfelt views. A relay of their missions to a worldwide audience. Hi, it's Johnny again, just popping in at the end of this one. 100 episodes along and I'm proud that it's fast become the podcast of record. 
This is coverage of the Jewish and Israeli world that just doesn't get properly aired in mass media. And I'm not ashamed to ask for your help. A one-off donation is always gratefully received to support my efforts, but a monthly donation really gets our service off the ground. Your donation can also be made with gift aid, and it's so easy to do, just click on this. Donorbox.org slash JG Podcast. That's donorbox.org slash JG Podcast. Are you in? Please share my series with your friends and thank you for listening.